The following episode of the Nick podcast contains explicit language and spoilers. We highly recommend you watch the corresponding episode before listening. Hey everyone, welcome back to this installment of the Nick Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes with the cast and crew for in-depth discussions on each episode. I'm Michael Begler. And I'm Jack Amiel. And we're the writers and co-creators of the series. Today we'll be talking about episode 9, entitled, Do You Remember Moonflower? And also joining us today is our semi-regular co-host, Michael Angarano, a.k.a. Boogieing Birdie Chickering Jr. (laughs) (laughs) It's because we caught him picking his nose. Yeah. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Uh, Also a little bit later, Eric Johnson, who we all know as Dr. Everett Gallinger, will be joining us from Toronto. He'll be here to tell us what it feels like to be the guy everyone loves to hate. Uh, Before we get to Eric, let's do some recapping. Uh, Big happening once again. Shall we start with the title track? Do you remember Moonflower? It's such a culminating moment for Lucy. A cricket. (laughs) I think it's not only culminating of this season, but I think just of her entire two-season arc, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, I I know we were writing toward toward her emotional emancipation. And, you know, I think we've we've been pushing and pushing to get to this place. The whole season has been about women and their empowerment or a society that disempowers them. And, you know, Michael, we we outlined that scene way early because, you know, we outlined the whole thing before we write it. And I didn't know exactly how that scene would play. And it just fell timing-wise that I had passed the script along episode nine to you, Michael, and you wrote that scene. And when I read it, I was just like, holy fuck, I want to see this. (laughs) I want to see this on screen so badly. What was, you know, the whole moonflower thing and the mule and everything, where did that all come from? My own personal experience growing up on Long Island. Uh, uh, <laughs> how how were your mules in the yeah, suburbs? Um, you know, some of these things for for me, and I'm sure as for you, Jack, it's it's really hard to say where it sort of forms in your brain. I just started to try and picture her past, her life, what that family life was like, and I just came upon this image of the mule and the broken down mule and. It just took off from there. It actually was one of those speeches, and I, I really appreciate all the, the, the compliments that you've given me about it, that flowed, that once I sort of landed on it, I, it just it just came out really easily. I don't think I really rewrote it much. I think it just was, it was all there, and it was just one of those writing moments that you just love and, and appreciate. This world offers too much. you think I'm too smart to let myself turn out that way and if that means sinning to get what I want well then so be it yeah when I got it I only added the disgusting stuff you met the man who slipped his fingers inside me you shook his hand like all that horror show shit I added to it because it had I wanted to sort of sharpen those little jabs, but that was it. I I didn't touch it other than make it more horrible. The thing about it is that Eve, and I know she's talked about it, but she talked about it in very opaque terms because she didn't want to give anything away when she was visiting us here. She was aiming for that speech all season two, and she only got one take on it, and she turned to Stephen, and almost no one does this, 
and said, can I do another one? And I think it was the second one that he used. She was just great. I remember sitting there and I think turning up to someone or turning to even you, Michael, and I just said, Eve is just crushing it. It's just, this is the this is such a great moment. It was great because that was her last day. That was her literally her last scene. And that, that was, um, I think, to go out on that is uh, a pretty much a big mic drop. Also, a, uh, a fun fact, that that's Steven's arm. That's Steven Soderbergh's arm. It is. I, I, have, a, I have a great photo injects. of Steven in the bed with the camera as she's tending to his arm, um, which I will put up on Twitter maybe. Something, now that the, something very uh, perverse and uh, fanciful. Uh, of, of Eve killing uh, Soderbergh. Soderbergh. <laughs> yeah. There was also, of course, the big fire and the death of Captain Robinson. Was it a desperate leap? Was it suicide? Those questions, of course, will be answered, hopefully, in the next episode. But this was our last day of production, and this was our only all-nighter. And I really have to give the hats off to the VFX people because the practical fire that they made happen on that set was unbelievable. Yeah, Mark Barrow rocked that one, man. And not only that, but the visual effects of Leslie and her team that they added in post to make it what it what the final product is it's 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 a, it's incredible to know like i wish everybody could have seen what we started with mm-hmm. and what we ended with because there's there's such an enormous amount of work that went into that one of the extraordinary things that happened was we wrote the scene with the idea of the ladder coming down through the floor and giant high ceilings and we were literally you know, it's one of those things where they tell you as a writer, oh, write whatever you want and we'll just try to find it. And we thought there's absolutely no way. There's no way. And then Rob Stream brought us the first time to that set, which is a building that used to be a, a place where they kept the records for Yonkers, the city of Yonkers, or maybe it was like MetLife or something. I thought it was like an insurance. Yeah. It, may, it may have been that. And it was like MetLife where they kept their backroom records or something. And... It was now, of course, because it's still New York, being gutted and turned into condos. And so the first time we went, we were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is incredible. We can use the staircase for the scene where Cat, where the moment where Captain Robertson yells down to Cornelia. And then we talked all about, uh, well, we can use this area for this. And we can, and it was all concrete. And it was so it was fireproof. So we could use it for all those other things. And then we went back for a second one. And we didn't know how exactly Cornelia was going to escape but leave Captain Robertson behind because mm. we'd written this thing with the ladder. And we were like, well, how are we going to play that? And the second time we went back, they had busted through some walls <laughs> to make, you know, because they were building something. And it just so happened that exact thing, they'd built, they'd broken out a section of wall. And beneath the wall was a 20-foot drop through that little sliver in the floor. And we were like, no way. How is this, like, the perfect, mm-hmm. perfect thing? Oh, it's not long enough. I'll carry you most of the way. Maybe more. You can climb down, hang, and drop. I'll hold it from up here. No. You have to, Neely. There's no other way. And what about you? Go find help. There's a fire brigade two blocks down. They've probably already seen the smoke. I'll go up the stairs and wait it out up there. And go. You've got to go, Neely. You're running out of time. Go. Get on this ladder and go now. By the way, for those who are big listeners of the podcast. This was the location where Rob Stream found the sandwich. Just, just That's just a little... Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. This is where Anthony was with the sausage sandwich. Just the sausage, sausage sandwich. Sausage bomb. Sausage. Sausage bomb. Um, which I really want right now. <laughs> so we also saw in this episode, we saw Gallinger and Algernon go in front of the medical board to debate eugenics. What Edwards and other people of his kind cannot accept 
is there is great validity in the eugenics movement. States such as California and Indiana are already seeing the benefits of a purified society and are considering writing it into their legislation. This movement is growing faster than any other in modern medicine. Men like Edwards likely also buried their heads when other revolutions arose, like germ theory, vaccinations, things that proved over time to be miracles. And uh, we saw that the board sided with Gallinger because this was the unfortunate truth. Eugenics was being accepted and taught, and people like Teddy Roosevelt and H.G. Wells and Winston Churchill all saw the legitimacy. And here's the most surprising one that I read about the other day was Helen Keller even mm-hmm. was someone who uh, thought there was there was legitimacy to the eugenics movement. It's amazing. Someone who couldn't experience race in any way, shape, or form found that there was some sort of defective race thing. It's it's an amazing yeah, thing she, how pervasive. She, she thought that there should be what were called purity doctors that should look at, that should decide if, if, a, if a baby is born with some sort of birth defect to kill it. Uh, really? Yeah. My God, it's, you know... We now know what you're, uh, what you guys are spinning off. You're, you're <laughs> seriously, <laughs> um, but yeah. So eugenics really did take off in a way. This is part of the progressive movement, and we talk about it a lot. But it was an era where we're coming out of the Victorian age, of sort of divine right of people, and and this idea that we really was much more based in superstitions and old traditions. Suddenly, you've got this world where medicine and miracles and film and soon we're going to get radio waves. And and man was fairly certain that he, and it's certainly a he at this point, was going to perfect humanity to the point of, 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 of engineering out with the brilliant mind of humanity. We, you know, we have the theory of evolution that's come along and been accepted. And, and so people then spin off and say, we understand so much about our condition now. So that this next step into eugenics is is really part of sort of sort of this this enthusiasm that can take a very very negative turn, and so I, I want to be I want to put it in context for our audience mm-hmm. because it's it's horrible, but there are some very progressive, interesting, smart people who were who were thinking this way. Well, one of those progressive, smart people, I would say, is the good night. Gallinger. Speaking of purity. Yes. Um, he's not only pure, but he knows how to knock a man down with a medical bag when need be. So, Eric Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Helen Keller, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> Look it up, dude. The, the, my, my, my jaw's on the floor with that one. I didn't, I didn't read that. That's, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Hi, guys. I want to preface this because I, I think... One of the things that we've all sort of tried to get out, I know that uh, Maya Kazan tweeted it a couple weeks ago. I've tweeted it a couple times. I've said it in interviews. Eric Johnson, let me be clear, is the kindest, sweetest, most concerned. We'll sit at lunch between, you know, in the middle of our day, and I look down and he's clearing all of our plates. Um, he's angry at me because I'm not eating vegetables. He is the kindest, most concerned, most fatherly, warm person i i think on the set and um and so the fact that everyone best, in, best wig in the business it's a damn fine wig so i gotta say i think i think eric is 
such a good actor and <clears throat> so well trained that he can separate himself from the character and know that if we dislike him, he's doing his job as well as he possibly can. Well, you know, I think I'm lucky in 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 some ways of, in preparing for this job. I've I've had a career of playing people that people that people haven't liked, so uh, I felt well equipped with some good armor coming into this. The thing that you guys were always very clear with me, even in season one, you're like, don't don't just you wait, it's going to get worse, it's going to get worse, and I kept wondering like, how how's it going to get worse? Well, this wait a minute, you actually knew. I I remember we had a we had a conversation. At the end of season one. It was one, only because that's what you guys were saying. Do you remember this conversation? We were shooting um, up in Yonkers, and mm-hmm. um, and we were standing there, and you, we were talking about like what we're thinking about for season two. And you said to me, oh, I bet I can guess. He's going to get into eugenics. And <laughs> how did you know that? Well, it actually it, it came out of a night that uh, I spent with Michael and Eve and Maya, and we were out and, and just having drinks after work and – you guys had been quite vocal about how it was going to get worse. I mean, like, how is it going to get worse? I mean, what's the worst thing I could be? It'd be like, what, am I going to be a Nazi? And uh, and it's like, well, that kind of makes sense. And and the eugenics had come up in, in some of the medical research that I had done going into season one, uh, just that, because it was very prevalent at the time period. And I'm like, oh, that's got to be it. That's got to be it. And uh, so I took a stab at it, and uh, turns out, ding, ding. eugenics. Well, in all fairness to Gallinger, his his baby dies, and his wife goes crazy. So I think I'm not, you know, just gonna give the guy the benefit <laughs> of the doubt for the second. It's okay. But... It's okay not to like him. He's 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 a he's an asshole. But can just it, it's a great it's a it's a great character because you. And you play him so well because you kind of like any other character on the show you would feel bad for, but for whatever reason, even though you you feel for Gallinger's circumstances, you're still like, but he's still such an asshole. Well, that's what I love. It's that it is is <laughs> it's completely complex. You know that you have this love hate relationship with him. He, I mean, he, it's the closest we have to a quote unquote villain on the show, but it's a product of the time, and you have to feel sort of sympathetic that his. His children die and his wife is responsible. I mean, all this stuff that's happened to him. So I think that's one of the one of the great things about the, the character is that it, it is hard to just pin him down as like, oh, God, what, what, what an asshole. I feel for him. I do. Well, I think one of the things that came through in, in episode nine here is and, and, and Jack, I think you said it best is is Gallinger is the epitome of white privilege. And and you see it here in episode nine so clearly in that, you know, despite the fact that he may be in the wrong, despite the fact that he does things that are morally questionable, he's he is the white privilege. He is things are going to go his way. You know, that that for me was it's like he just is the embodiment of that of the establishment of of the ruling class. You know, the immigration fight early on was, you know, was about keeping out this group or that group. And originally it was keep the French out because we're British, keep the Dutch out, you know. But it's always about the establishment pulling up the ladder behind them and saying, no, no, we're here now. And with the white establishment, it really was this element of we founded this country, we made it great, we've built it. And now all these other people are coming to leech off it and take. And it's not an uncommon sentiment, unfortunately, today. Gallinger is a reflection of that. And I love that we gave him a sailboat, you know, like a family sailboat, which is the <laughs> ultimate symbol of like, for you know, Michael and me, these two, you know, outsider Jews, like anyone who has a sailboat, that's, you know, that is just, that that's a world we know nothing about. Also, the ultimate irony is that Gallinger is Canadian. 
Gallinger's played by a kid, ain't he? <laughs> yes, exactly. I think I think you know Gallinger. If I'd known he had a boat, he wouldn't have looked so sad in parts of season one. He would have just been in his boating place. He would have been on his boat in his mind and been totally fine with things. Ah, baby died. Wife's crazy. It's all right. I'm on my boat. It's uh, and it was very. It's it's a peaceful boat, man. Oh yeah. Did so? Did they teach you how to sail? Did the, the the owner teach you how to sail? That was the first time I've ever sailed. And what kind of alarmed me was how cavalier the boat owner was. And everybody was just you know steer it towards the camera and off you go. Thankfully, it was a, one of those perfectly calm days, and it was it was as easy as steering a baby carriage. But it was uh, that was quite a trip. That was a lot of fun. That was a great day. I'd love I'd love for you guys to tell me about the the scene where, you know, after we come out of the medical board hearing and, and we, we kind of square off, the scene was originally written differently. Maybe you could tell about the, the talk about the change there because I found that fascinating. And it was about a week before we shot it that the change happened. Well, originally it was a full-on fight. And the idea was that Algernon beats your ass and you get into a real fight and – yeah, at one point, like he's he says, okay, I, I've kind of won, and you kind of you're huddled or whatever, and he turns around and puts his coat back on, and you sucker punch him, and you start just going wailing away on the eye. I su- I suppose we didn't really have an alley, and we'd been in a few alleys, and I don't just, think Stephen wanted to shoot another fight. another fight. Yeah, there was um, something redundant. Yeah, yeah, and so we really just we we you know, we had the dialogue, we rewrote the dialogue. Because it had to fit this idea of, I'm going to sucker punch you and look, you're you know you're this low, this low creature who resorts to violence and all that, and I think Gallinger feels justified in sucker punching him. I think we felt because in his mind he says, look how much more clever I was. I I made him drop his guard. I just outthought him again because I am superior. How did you feel playing it, Eric? Well, what was interesting is like, you know, we we had, you know, rehearsed, we'd done the fight choreography, we'd kind of worked it out. And uh, and then I, you know, I get the revisions and there's a there's a monologue there. Of course, instead of being a man of science, you raised your fists like an animal. The animal we are proving your people to be. In the face of intellectual reason, you can't help but resort to violence. The thing that really took me with it was just how much worse it is. How much worse it is that he he beats him like that. You know, he, at never at never at any point does Gallinger go toe to toe with him. Right. And because he, in you know, I think he he really he can't. The only way he's gonna beat Edwards at, at any in anything uh, is by cheating. You know, we saw that when he botched the surgery with right. Carr, where he you know sabotaged it. And and this is another case of that where he's gonna get ahead by sabotaging. The person in front of him. I think it was very telling, and it, you know, it, in in my mind, it made it much worse, and and so therefore better. And and you know, I don't know if I originally felt that way when it first came out, but as as we got closer to doing it, it was, uh, I was like, okay, I got got really on board with it, and it was it was an exciting change. And I think again, in Stephen's defense, you know, we've seen fights, we've we've seen that, and I think to to also add the credibility of, he's an incredible fighter, and you know, despite. Gallinger being a capable man, he's he's no uh, he's no street fighter. So it was uh, it, it was it was a it was a fun day though those two days. A lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of talking for didn't, Gallinger didn't, there. Didn't you shoot a scene 
afterwards where you had a black eye, didn't you? With well, that with Dorothy, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Then mm-hmm. that is yeah. now well, it's in there, but digitally removed. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I kept seeing the other side of Gallinger because I I don't think you can write him and hate him. So there's the moment where they take the death photo of him and him and his daughter and his wife. And that look on your face, Eric, is so horrific. Um, and you say, my God, this poor bastard. And even though you brought the disease into the house because you were being a douche to <laughs> Algernon, I, I think and you are, yes. you know, you are the master of your own undoing in a lot of ways. It still breaks my heart because there are these moments you do love your wife desperately and watching her destruction is is horrible for you. And so, I mean, t- can you talk to us about the other side of him, which is this is this man who's hurting and who's lost so much? For me, it was, you know, really finding the, the heart of him. And, and why does somebody feel that way about another race or, or other people? Or, you know, where does that sense of superiority come from and why? You know, whatever cultural leanings and, and thoughts he had on day one, as soon as his job is gone, he's been he's been slighted. He's in lesser standing and he's now uh, in his peer group. He's can be mocked. And, you know, so he he does lose something in that. And then he continues to lose and lose and lose and lose. And, you know, I think probably the worst thing for Gallinger is he knows he's not as good of a doctor as Edwards is. The house of cards started to crumble when Edwards walked into the hospital. And, and I think from that point on, everything that went on just kept galvanizing his, his, his hate for Edwards. And, and he was driven by this dream, this, this dream that he wanted of this perfect life with this lovely family and this beautiful wife and these beautiful children. And they'd move uptown and they had this beautiful house. And one day he'd, he'd, he'd retire from the Nick as a somewhat, you know, somewhat of a celebrity surgeon with his own practice and 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 be able to talk about the crazy days at the nick with his grandchildren around and a whiskey in his hand i think that was the dream that was lost to a degree and i think what we see in season two is his firm committal to getting that back at any cost well there's a stoutness to him there's this idea that i can survive anything we originally had a speech in there for him on the boat to Thackeray, where Thackeray's sort of cowering and saying, I, I can't do it. And we, orig- I, 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 we originally had a speech that was probably a little too on the nose, but it was basically this idea of, I come from this long line of people who've been through through hell and back, and they still built this country, and they, and they haven't had one minute of self-pity. You know, it's sort of this stiff upper lip, waspy resolve. And, and Willpower will get you everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's, and, yeah. But what's nice is that, you know, you played that, that certitude, it fits with eugenics. This idea of I'm made of I'm made of stronger stuff than you. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there's there were so many times reading the scripts, especially into season two, where you know I just get that sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe we're doing this. Oh my god, I can't believe I got to say this. Like it was just, you know, in those moments of 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 just quiet rehearsal on my own, it was, uh, it, it, you know, so grateful to to get to go to these places in in some regard and, and so disgusted that we're going there it was uh it was <laughs> it was interesting needless to say and and this is a question for you too michael is it hard to play characters that people may not necessarily like well i mean i, I think 
what's so uh, liberating about playing a character that's not similar to yourself is that you, I don't know, it feels like you're, uh, you get to have a little bit more fun. You know, they always say the hardest role to play is, is yourself. There's something that's slightly uh, perverse in, in playing a character that is so completely opposite of of what you feel or what you believe. I mean, Eric, don't you think it's, you know, in a way, even even more fun? Yeah, I th- I think it it it's uh it's an interesting challenge. You know, it's 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 fun to get in the heads. Like I I do enjoy playing bad guys. I mean, this is a, this was somewhat different in 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 that where it was, can you reel off your bad guys? Um, the people you know, what's what's your Twitter uh, profile? Oh, it was uh the guy you hated on uh, on Smallville and uh, Rookie Blue, and now hate on the Nick because uh, you know the very first episode of Smallville, I strung Superman up in a field. Like a scarecrow with a kryptonite around his neck, and uh, you know, I learned after that that there's no coming back with your audience. After that, you can't you can't win them back. I you're, mean, you're, you're the bad guy. I could never talk to you on set because of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, you've 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 played a lot of a lot of these unlikable guys, and you're the most likable human I know. Well, you know, what's funny is like I, you know, I I think I have that face. I mean, you guys saw it. You cast me. Like, you know, who would be a great asshole? In our show is the guy, that guy. That guy looks like such an asshole. The guy with Leonardo just, DiCaprio let's just, here. Let's, <laughs> let's just put him. You know, he's got that asshole face. So uh, apparently, that's what people think of when they see me. They, they, you know, see my headshot come across their desk. You're like, we need an asshole, Johnson. Let's get him. Look honestly, at that asshole right honestly, there. I'll, I'm going to tell you what it is. We are jealous as hell. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, All right. We are jealous. Right. We are. Flattery. We are jealous. We are jealous as. Hell, Eric and I have like such a special, <laughs> sentimental relationship with each other because you know uh, season one we were in a lot of the scenes together and I I I think Eric was really kind of the um, no Andre was the first person I met at Greenfield at the at the fitting, but Eric was the first person I think we had the first walkthrough of the set together and you know we met Doctor Burns together and we you know had surgery practice and so. It was. I remember having lunch with him. At uh, did he clear your set. place? Because he does that. Yeah, absolutely. Did he yell at you for only eating white food? No, we we had a kale salad. <laughs> Where <both> you? <laughs> of us. But I re- we I just remember looking <laughs> at each other. Salad. I just remember looking at him and him looking at me and being like, "This is going to be the best job in the world." And we yeah. both uh, every day would you know have a drink after work or or be on set. And it would get to the point where I would be like, we have to stop commenting on how lucky we are and just do the job <laughs> because we would do it every day yeah. where we would just we would look at each other as, you know, Soderbergh shot a scene and just have like a silent shared acknowledgement at like, yes, this is we are involved in this right this, now. Yeah, this is about as good as it gets. This is. Uh, yeah, it was quite funny. We were and we were nostalgic. The thing is, we were nostalgic before it, it was even, even in over. season two. We were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We were like, "Oh my god, this is just the best," and everybody's the best, and the, the you know this. I saw I saw your scene, and it was the best. And <laughs> yeah, it, it was uh, a little. It was, it was ridiculous. We were. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not ashamed to admit. I'm. I'm a little sentimental and ridiculous. One thing that actually impresses me about you and Michael and other members of the cast is that you guys aren't just actors. I mean, you're writers, you're directors, you're musicians. And I would like to know what you find attractive about those other creative outlets. Well, I mean, it's especially after having been in, you know, 
been acting for so long. I think it's just such a natural progression. Like I never wanted to go to college because I only wanted to go to film school in college. Not mm-hmm. you know, I not that I wasn't interested in other things. I'm I think the great thing about being able to do what we do not only as an actor but just people who get to work on film sets is that you get to go to different countries and you get to live in different cities and explore different people's way of lives and you know, you just have so many different interests. So the natural progression for me has always been not only interested in, you know, how movies are made but the the jobs that people have on film sets from writing to directing to cinematographer so to the composer to you know dolly grip it's all something that i find very interesting so i it's just always been a very natural progression to me what about you eric because i know you write you do so many things i think the thing that you know as when i got got involved as a kid the thing i loved about it was was the team aspect. You know, it really felt like, especially on good shows or independent features where there's not a lot of money and there's not a lot of time, you're part of this amazing team and you're all trying to achieve the same goal. And the problem solving that goes in, and, and Jack, I think you said it too, you put a problem in front of a, of a film crew and, and they're going to solve it and they're going to figure out how to do it. Is it just the, the, the creative problem solving ability of a film crew is, is so impressive. And and I love that atmosphere. I I love that atmosphere. And then on top of it, you're throwing in this really great game of pretend where everybody is buying in, and all and and you got all the right clothes to make it look real, and you've got all the right props to make it feel real, and everybody's believing with you while you're doing it. And you know, to me, when I was a kid, and you'd be playing pretend, and everybody bought in. And nobody is saying, no, we wouldn't do that, or no, you missed me, or when everybody just bought in, it was so much fun. And to me, there's still an element of that when, when, when you're, when it could be making a short film or you're, you're working with Soderbergh, there's still that great element of this is a really, this is the best game of pretend that we've figured out how to make a living with. It's extraordinary that we get to be, in a lot of ways, innocent kids and just keep going, what if, what if, well, how about, what if? And then get to bring it all to life. It's, I, I, I don't know. I, first of all, I have no talent for any other other job, so I, I don't know if I could do anything else. But Same here. Yeah, exactly. We're in a lot of trouble. If I'm, this... I'm pretty much unemployable <laughs> exactly. in any other field. I have not not one other marketable skill. And to be able to play, to come on set with you guys and go, well, we want to re- we want to rewrite the scene and goof around and you know i mean there are times i'll say okay eric you're gonna say this and then michael you're gonna say that and then michael begler will go oh wait why don't we change this and before we know it we're literally just making it up as as we go along in a lot of ways and and getting to play and go oh that sounds really cool let's try that and you know soderbergh's doing the same thing with the camera and everyone's sort of having this wonderful experience where we're all going hey it's a safe space who wants to play and that's pretty wonderful i i i'm so grateful that kind of creative collaboration is is uh, I'm sure that's what jazz musicians feel when when they when they get into it or when they get a really great jam session going. To me, that's what it is. It's this it's this really great melding of minds in the, in in this creative outlet. I and I don't care what my role is in that. I I don't care if if I'm literally cleaning up the lunch dishes <laughs> at, at times because I just love being a part of that world. You know, I'll gladly wrap cable. I will, uh, whatever it is. I am fascinated by other people's jobs. Like like Michael was saying, whether it's, 
you're a dolly grip or you're a costume designer or you're a props master or you're the PA that day that had to stand out on the corner and it was so fucking cold and your feet are frozen, but you have a dream and you got a short film that you want to make and you're going to shoot it with your buddies the next weekend. It's just, it's, uh, you know, I feel so incredibly fortunate to get to, to play in this world with, with, with some pretty amazingly talented people. Well, that's a good segue to it's over, Eric. You're out of the business. Um, we should have we should have <laughs> told it. you this is really what this is about. There is no podcast. This this, nice this is the big you. this is the big intervention, Eric. You've played too many assholes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot because it's been a long time. But can you do your oh, uh, your your Thackeray real fast? Oh my God! I know, oh, I know. It's because um, I, I, you know, I. But you're good too. I mean, I yeah, but I. You do a great Doctor Burns. Oh, Dr. Burns, don't worry about him. Now, um, but Clive's Sorry, is it Ratsa Rizzo or is it? Yeah, no, you know. <laughs> we live in a time of... We live in a time of endless possibilities. <laughs> I don't know, how was that? That it's, was pretty great. Yeah, it's, that's, that's good for a, a cold... That's uh, a pretty good CO, man. That was... <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, well, I think that's, that's where we can, we can leave it. Um, all of us still playing pretend. Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you for coming on and hanging out with us today. Thank you for having me, guys. Our podcast was produced by Barry Finkel with production help from Emily Rubin. Make sure to watch episode 10, the big finale, entitled This Is All We Are, next Friday at 10 p.m., only on Cinemax. And then tune in to the podcast where our guest will be the gifted surgeon Algernon Edwards, played by Andre Holland. I know we're coming to the end of these podcasts, but we still always love hearing from you. Leave comments on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, or our Tumblr page where you can find more great material. Just go to at the Nick. And just a shout out to some of our big Twitter fans, Ellen Vance, LaMonica, Sherry Bouchard. Thanks for all the love. So until next time, I'm Michael Begler. And I'm Jack Amiel. And I'm Michael Angorano. As always, thanks for listening. 